SLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Cambria Lee, Communications Associate at the ACLU of PA, and your guest host for a special edition of the podcast. In this episode, we discuss a range of issues and challenges that women still face today, despite how far the movement for women's rights and gender equity has come. We'll hear from three women of the ACLU of PA, legal intake manager, Andrea Anastasi, criminal justice policy advocate, Tiara Bradford, and immigrants' rights legal fellow, Muniba Talakner. The three women speak about their experiences as professional women with intersecting identities, destroying gender norms, and the importance of being inclusive and ensuring that women of color and trans women are not left behind. This conversation was previously recorded on March 22, 2021, as a Facebook Live panel discussion in commemoration of Women's History Month. I'm really excited to have you all for this Women's History Month discussion. Um, So I think we can just all start off by going around and introducing ourselves. Yeah, sure. Thanks so much, Kim, for moderating and doing this. Um, my name is Maniba Talakter. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, hers. Uh, I am an Immigrants' Rights Legal Fellow. Uh, so i um, part of the legal team working on mostly immigrants' rights issues. Um, and yeah, excited to be here with you all. Hi, everyone. I'm Tiara Bradford, and I am our criminal justice policy advocate working on our Smart Justice campaign here in Allegheny County. Um, And I work on issues in the western part of Pennsylvania. Um, My pronouns are she, her. I'm Andrea Anastasi. Very honored to be here today, especially with my wonderful colleagues. Um, My pronouns are she, her, hers. I am the legal intake manager at the ACLU of Pennsylvania, uh, which means that I am responsible for uh, managing all of the intake that comes to our affiliates all over the state. Um, Although I'm based in Philadelphia on uh, Lenape Lenape land, which I just want to give a shout out to the Lenape peoples. Um, And I think that was all that was requested of us at this time. So thank you all for being with us. I did want to start off with kind of like a little fun question before we get into um, some of the other questions I have for you. Um, Is there, you know, a women's rights issue that you really want to just like lift up for um, the month, like a women's rights issue that really hits home for you? So I want to say all of them. But I, I want to say that I think that it's really important that we have a month to commemorate and honor all of the contributions that women make to history, culture, and society. At the same time, I think the fact that we have a month out of 12 of the year for this um, indicates to me um, that we, for, for me personally, an issue that's near and dear to my heart, I think, is more adequate and accurate representation of women year round. Because without that adequate and accurate representation um, in all levels of society, women can't um, engage uh, fully as public participants in the systems. Um, 
and 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 practices and policies that govern them. I think uh, you know what Andrea said really resonates. All of them is such a good answer, but um, you know, if I had to choose one, something that I think about often is like the policing of what women wear or can't wear, um, and that's something that impacts me on a day-to-day -day basis because I wear a hijab. But like, you know, I like there are other um, things that I've seen like. Oh my God, since elementary school, when we were told we couldn't like wear short skirts in my school and like, like things like that, which it's just wild to me that, um, sorry for the background noise, um, but it's just wild to me that, you know, my younger cousins are still being policed on what they wear. I had to get special permission to take the bar with my hijab on and, um, I didn't submit it on time. So I actually took, like, this is like something that I hate talking about because I got super emotional, but I had to take the bar without my hijab. And it's like, you know, there's so many hurdles for women to already jump through, but to like have to be pleased about what you wear, it's like, should not be happening ever, but especially not in 2021. <laughs> so yeah. I didn't take the bar in 2021, but still, you know, still a young lawyer. Oh, wow. Thank you for sharing that. I didn't know, but like we should send them a letter and change that. Definitely. Um, and Tierra. Yeah. Well, first I want to say, Aniba, OMG. <laughs> like that is absolutely crazy. I'm sorry that that happened to you. Um, and that it's, we should do something about that. But um, so something that I was thinking about as a women's rights issue, actually this morning I was on Twitter and I saw a video of a woman talking about all the things that women go through after they give birth um, and how that like can impact their body like right after pregnancy, but like also for like years and years afterwards. Um, and so it just made me how, think about how we don't take pregnancy that seriously. Um, and I'm not pregnant or I don't have children, but still like I'm thinking about the future, like in the next few years, that could be me. Um, and also thinking about um, how women of color, specifically black women have like a high mortality, higher mortality rate when it comes to giving birth um, because doctors and physicians and stuff aren't taking them seriously um, when they're saying that they're, they feel something happening to them or whatever may happen with pregnancy. And it's like, we're supposed to be a first world country and we're still having people who are dying from childbirth because physicians aren't um, taking them seriously. And so I think just like women and health is something that I think I wanted to uplift and highlight um, as something that we still have to work on today and something that's a major issue. Yeah, that that's definitely on like my brain too a lot. Um, just being like a black woman, I feel like the age too, that I'm like right around, like I just see so many people in my age range having children and I think about that and I'm like, it scares me to, <laughs> to even have to interact um, just in our healthcare system nowadays. Um, but for me, I also think about like Serena Williams and um, another topic that comes to mind is just how passionate about something we're told that we're like over emotional, but like a man can do the same thing. And it just makes me think, um, 
about like Serena Williams when she's like on the court and like when she was that one um, match where she was getting like penalized for everything. And I'm just like, that still happens in the workplace or just in life in general. Like if you show any sort of passion or um, competitiveness, you're told that you're like over emotional. Speaking of Serena Williams, she also had problems when she was giving birth. Like she almost died. I forgot what the actual health issue was. And it just went to show that even if you're a woman with like a lot of money and like name recognition, it could still be you. Like I think her husband had to like speak up on her behalf or something. But yeah, that was even an issue for her. So this is, yeah. Yeah. And I think that um, that's like a perfect segue into um, the first question that I have for you all. Um, so in today's society, do you still find it difficult to be you know, a professional woman? Um, how do you think the fight for equity, equality and respect differ today compared to a few decades ago? Um, as far as being a professional woman, I, I think there's still... I don't know. There's still this for me, I've been thinking about recently about femininity and how much of that I'm allowed to show, like in professional settings and at work. And it's something that I have to go back and forth about with um, all the time, because there's a fear that if you're too feminine, then people won't respect you um, or treat you the way they should. And I think that's garbage. I think we should be able to act and um, present ourselves in any way. And we should be given um, respect, like regardless. So that's something that I'm always constantly thinking about, especially as like a young person who's still like getting to know herself and figure out who she is in the world in general. Um, and as far as um, the second question, um, I think that there have been a lot of people who have come before us, fortunately, who have helped a lot with the work that we do today. Um, and so I don't want to say necessarily our, what, we're, what we work on now is like easier, but I think a foundation has definitely be, been laid by people who've come before us to like help us with the work that we do now. In terms of how it impacts me, I want to say I feel really lucky to work at a place where I'm, I feel mo most of the time I can be my authentic self, but it still does cross my mind. I mean, Muniba can see this the most clearly because we work in the same department. I, you know, speak my mind often. <laughs> um, but there are still situations, especially like after the fact, where I'm policing like my own. Uh, is what I said okay? Like, how did that land? But only would I be asking myself the same questions if I were not a woman? Um, or should I have asked that more as a question? Which, oh, um, so that's that's still present even for a modern modern woman. Um, I, and I will also acknowledge that I am I am the white white woman in this group, so I also have a degree of privilege there. Um, in terms of Overall, how has uh, the the fight for equity in the workplace changed? I think it's a really tricky thing because we saw we we see um, an explosion of of women in the workforce. Like since the nineteen seventies, I think the number of women in the workforce has more than doubled. Um, but if you put that number aside and look at where are women in the workforce, are they in management positions? Are they in all of the fields? Are they in NASA? 
uh, are they our secretaries? Are they teachers? Are they, you know, where are they in the in the workforce pipeline? Um, I think those numbers probably will reveal that we've kind of stagnated, um, as will the fact that we still make less than men. <laughs> what is the current number? Is now we we make eighty one cents to their dollar. Um, and, and this is with, with all of the work that our wonderful predecessors have done and the women that keep fighting like this fight head on are doing. Um, these inequalities still exist. Um, they look different, um, but they're still there. Um, and I think they call for, not by us because we're very, we have so much work on our plates, but they do call for, you know, maybe in some senses, I think I've become complacent when thinking about this issue, um, but, and I, I wonder to what extent other women are complacent and they're thinking about it um, and whether we, we need to re-examine all of it because why, why, has, why has it stagnated for so many decades? Yeah, and then when you look at those disparities, um, it's even worse for like women of color. Like when you talk about like the pay, uh, the wage gap, I think for black women, it's, it's 66% cents to the dollar than for Latin um, ex-women, it's like even lower than that. Yeah, I think like one of the things like that I was thinking about um, also Kim and Tiara, I think this goes to how um, Serena Williams like has to or is judged on this different, uh, in this completely different way than um, her male counterparts. Um, I think one of the things like I think about often is like, I like to really think before saying anything. And I think sometimes that comes off as like me, um, you know, not having like something substantive or like just being too meek or that's how, like, I feel like some people read it and that frustrates me. Um, and, uh, and it's like, I think like if someone a male attorney were quieter, they would they would just be like, oh, that person's so serious and thoughtful. And whereas like, it's like, oh, this person um, who's a woman, she probably doesn't have a backbone and doesn't belong in this field. Um, and, and that, you know, that some of it, like Andrea said, like you do a little bit of self-policing, you're like, okay, wait, no, I need to say something right now just to say it so I don't look like, that person, um, or be judged in that way. And I, I think like, you know, I, I doubt our like male counterparts in the legal department are ever thinking that. And that goes to my second point is I think mansplaining is such an issue in like all spaces less. So I would say internally, but I, I think, you know, I'm sure like folks just, feel more comfortable to talk about an issue or feel like they're an authority on an issue when they're not, <laughs> um, who often uh, happen to be male identifying. <laughs> so I think that's, you know, that's something that I know, like I struggle with and, and other folks that I've spoken to who identify as women, um, struggle with and and like when to call that out or when to let it be like I know I was just thinking about like this email interaction where someone was like oh by the way you should do this and I was like yep 
yeah, I did. I did do that. And that's like, you know, it's like how, how many times should you like call people out on their, um, um, in, in their blind spots and, um, uh, and, and also just like, Hey, that's not, that's not cool to do. Uh, and I think thinking about a few decades ago, Tara, what you were saying is like a lot, a lot of really important foundation has been laid down. Like I know that, um, I think, uh, it was like two years ago that I was, um, telling one of my, um, relatives who honestly, I'm not sure how I'm related to, that's how it is in busy families. <laughs> um, but at a family reunion, I was talking to her and she's also an attorney. And I was like, I feel so weird being the only person in the room that looks like me. And then she's like, it was worse before because she's been practicing for quite some time now. And she, and it, like, you know, she's still a young attorney, but I think she started working, um, uh, 10 years ago, I guess not a young attorney, but like she's a young person. So that's why I view her as a young attorney. But I think it's, to me, it's like wild how some of the things that people grappled with 10 years ago are, you know, barely have shifted. And, um, that's, still something to think about like the legal field like it is more diverse but we still you know we still see legal departments that are like largely white largely male um, I'm not talking about like like any specific one but I can tell you like in certain like you know in any like legal team meeting, I usually happen to be the only person of color. Um, and sometimes it's the only woman and it's like, so, so strange still to be occupying space in that way. And to always thinking about how you're, you are set apart from the rest of the group. Yeah. And I think I was, um, reading, I mean, the legal field in general is still predominantly um, male dominated. And then when you get down to like um, bringing a race into that, it's maybe like 15% when it comes to people of color. And then when it comes to women, I think it's around um, like 30 some percent. But um, at the ACLUPA, we, uh, our organization is predominantly um women so that that's just like an interesting um dynamic okay so moving along thank you all for those thoughtful answers um uh, historically women of color have been the last to receive rights and access to many of the privileges that are afforded to white america in the advocacy and legal work that we do at the aclupa what are some areas in which you see women of color still being left behind I can start again. I feel like we it's a pattern. It's like a circle. Circle. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I will say, because I work on our criminal justice work, I think it's kind of difficult because a lot of the racial disparities in the criminal justice world are male centered because like men are incarcerated more than 
women in general and um, some of the greatest disparities have to do with like black men, right? Being the most incarcerated or disproportionately incarcerated. However, like the effects of incarceration and over-incarceration impact women just the same. Um, and especially if you think about how women, we still tend to play more traditional roles and like we are the ones who are child rearing and like keeping houses together, like, incarceration is going to significantly impact women because they do so much for their families, you know? And I think a lot of people, first of all, a lot of people forget in general that people who are incarcerated have families, like they have loved ones who care about them. Um, but specifically for women, it's like, these are mothers, these are caretakers who, you know, any one of us could be incarcerated for any certain reason. And so, I think we need to start uh, thinking about women when we're thinking about re-entry and what people need when they're coming back into society and when we're thinking about decarceration and um, and not and locking people up pre-trial and like, you know, someone can be locked up for three days and like lose their job and lose custody to their kids, what have you. So I think we definitely could do a better job of talking about women more when we're um, talking about the impacts of incarceration, um, especially since the um, the rates of incarceration for women has like increased. Like it used to be, I don't have the numbers on me right now, but it's certainly increased over the past 20 years, um, especially for uh, black women being more and more incarcerated. So I think that's one of the issues where we could do a better job. I read something the other day, I forgot the name of the program that Obama um, created for black men. Um, and I think it was Kim Kimberly Crenshaw, the, the person who conceived the idea of intersectionality and feminism, who came up with a parallel program for women. Um, and there was some sort of byline about how black men are like the drivers of reform and then like women, black women are left behind. Um, so what you said just really, really, really rings true and um, also made me think of um, the work of Harold and, and Gada, um, uh, two of our colleagues at the ACLU of Pennsylvania that do a lot of um, work around the school to prison pipeline. Um, I think that they worked with a group called uh, Black, Black Girls Equity Alliance that put out an astonishing report at the end of last year was 2020, yes. It's such a long year, um, <laughs> but it, uh, the report revealed that um, black female students were um, referred to the, the criminal law system at seven times the rate of white female students, or maybe it was 10 times, but as compared with black male students to white boys, it was like seven to one. So the, the 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 disproportionality was was way was even worse when you were looking at um, black girls, um, and then then like you know so the precursor to like mass incarceration for for a lot of people is this is the school to prison pipeline. So I would say another area where um, um, young black women in particular are being left behind is in education. Um, especially when, when we're talking about the school to prison pipeline. So thank you so much, Tara, for lifting lifting up mass incarceration um, so I could lift up the school to prison pipeline. I was thinking about how um, 
the supports that like uh, folks who have learned or children who have learning disabilities and um, how that ends up being a lot of times like I don't have specific specific statistics, but I worked with a lot of um, young black girls and uh, in my last job. And it's just, um, it's, it's really, really sad to see like learning disorders being um, passed off as behavioral issues, especially for black women because um, of just existing stereotypes and like things like, you know, disrespect and um, not listening to authority like is like the ultimate thing that folks um or school administrators uh, lean back on to and it's it's certainly quoted language um uh but it's upsetting because it's you know folks who don't have the support to navigate um uh, a system that, like to navigate like a school system that's like setting them up for failure but also like being in those um, advocacy meetings, like it's really hard to tell a school administrator, like this is, like you can't be using that kind of language without like um, bringing bringing race into it. But um, you know, that's that's the other issue is like when you're when you're doing advocacy on that kind of level, um, there's there's just so much resistance to talk about race when that's that's what's important in in spaces like that because otherwise like you just see like a disproportionate amount of um young black girls and young women of color um being suspended and not getting the school time they need and not having their um learning disorders diagnosed because you know that's that's what uh, like the administration just is incentivized to do so yeah um so you all have been mentioning you know kind of the intersection of race and womanhood and um you know we we all have similar struggles but um it's clear that the more marginalized boxes you check off um your hurdles become more complex um, so why is it important to um, continually acknowledge our intersectionalities in the movement for women's rights? I mean, this this is something that I've just, like, throughout my legal career and before that, think about so much because, especially in the context of doing, um, like, litigation, I think there is so, so much um, risk of doing more harm than good in pursuing outcomes and settlements when they're not informed by community members that you're working with. And one of the things that I think um, you really need to be thinking about in, in like pursuing litigation is, um, you know, how, how complicated that issue becomes as you're thinking about those quote-unquote boxes. Um, and the more boxes that are checked, like, it, it impacts, like, what kind of relief someone is looking for, or, like, you know, me as a lawyer is thinking about. Um, and this is, like, like, I'm gonna, on the fly, come up with a hypothetical, but, um, but let's say like we're settling a case and the win is 
getting the city to pay for um, like workforce readiness classes. Uh, I think, you know, like maybe some lawyers won't be thinking about like how access plays into that. And if like a workforce readiness class is only offered online, like you might be like, oh, that's great. Like, you know, folks can get on their computers, get like do this on their own time. But obviously that's not the case for a lot of folks who don't have internet access. And that's not, that's not something a white male lawyer necessarily is thinking about. Um, it might not be something that I'm necessarily thinking about. And so it's just so important to be thinking about like all of the communities um, and individuals like impacted by a case you're working or on and the same goes for advocacy right um and how how things get complicated when you know gender sexual orientation or um how you identify place and like all of those things can just really really shift the way um relief looks like for uh, a person and i think I struggle with that every day when I think about like the cases we're working on. And I know um, like our department as a whole tries to challenge each other and, and think about like, hey, you know, maybe this is not what we should be doing. Like, even though it looks like it's a solution or it could better something, like, is this where our resources are best serving communities? Um, and that, that re work requires I think it like mandates us to be thinking about intersectionality and thinking about all those different boxes and how um, they complicate or, uh, you know, ask us to do more or less in situations. And yeah, so I don't know. I think it's important. I think I want to take like a little bit of a like broader approach from Maniba, but and just think about intersectionality, like personally, I will say one, whenever people used to ask me like if I was a feminist or whenever I thought about like feminism, I used to not say I was a feminist or really because because I didn't feel like I was part of feminism. Also, when I used to think about how I identify um I would think, oh, you know, I'm black before I'm a woman. And you all probably think like, what? What does that even mean? <laughs> but I would think about um, like black issues and walking through the world as a black person more than I would as a woman. Um, I think now I've definitely come to the place where I'm like, I'm both at the same time. <laughs> and like, I can like think about both of those things as I'm walking through the world. Uh, but the point is that I think a lot of times black women and um, other women of color can feel like the movement isn't necessarily thinking about them or catering to them or when they're seeing different moves that are being made in the movement, kind of like what Maniba was saying, like it's not really addressing the issues that we prioritize or care about as a community. Um, so I definitely think intersectionality is so, so, so important. Um, and I recommend to you all who are watching out there to read um, Women, Race, and Class by Angela Davis, because she really talks about um, the history of um, women's rights and like how, you know, white women were moving versus how black women were moving, how white women were just trying to get out of this forever domesticated status versus 
you know, black women being seen as more masculine and being forced to do labor. And so basically not even being seen as women. Um, And so overall, I think intersectionality is important because we're all starting from different places and we all have our different issues. Um, and we are not going to get along or we are not going to get very far like as women if we don't make sure we're uplifting like all women and bringing all women along and addressing all the issues um, and not prioritizing other people's people's needs who maybe already have privilege over others. So, uh, yeah, uh, Angela Davis, women recent class. <laughs> Thanks for that recommendation. There's, there's no other way for me. Um, you know, when Kimberly Crenshaw came up with that concept like 30 some years ago before it became so ubiquitous, the case that inspired her was a case where I think it was four black women wanted to sue or they did sue General Motors because they couldn't get a job there. Um, at that time, General Motors allowed women to work as secretaries and, and those types of jobs. Um, but in practice, it did only allowed white women to have those jobs. So in, in, in effect, black women couldn't work at General Motors. Um, and it, the court, in looking at the case, it looked at the issue of race and it looked at the issue of sex separately, like through two totally different lenses instead of combining the lenses. When you look at the, 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 the race lens only, um, the, the court saw that you could have a black male factory worker in the secretary pool. So the race claim out. Um, and when it looked at the lens of sex without the lens of race, it saw, well, we have white women working in the secretary pool at Gen- General Motors, so sex discrimination out. So for, for me, it is just it's so obvious and fundamental that you can't address the effects of compound discrimination when you have a, a, a person who's a, like these these four these four women in this case they're black women they're black and they're women it's not either or they can't just choose um, just like I identify as a woman I also identify as a queer woman but in order to have a a full portrait of who I am. Um, and all of my beautiful complexity, you need to see me as both. You can't see me as either or. Um, And maybe a a simpler, like non-legalese way of putting this um, is we have the visible spectrum, which has Roy G. Biv, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Um, If somebody asked me if I only wanted to look at the world through one of those lenses, let's say orange, I'd be like, no, that wouldn't make sense. I'd be giving up on all of these other colors. And no offense to Cam, I know you ha- you're partial to orange, um, but that just I wouldn't have the full picture of all the things that I'm seeing right now. Um, you know, and granted, I do want to acknowledge that there are there are people who do not have access to the full visible spectrum, um, but most people do. And if, if you can, then why would you why would you give up any of those lenses and not have the the complete picture that you can see before you um, in order to embrace reality? fully doesn't make any sense to me yeah and when we're talking about you know um looking at intersectionalities and being more inclusive in the movement um it just makes me think about um this quote from audrey lord um 
who is a black queer woman. And she famously said, um, I am not free while any woman is unfree, even if her shackles are very different from my own. Um, and then in that hearing that quote just makes me think about, you know, like how uh, Tiara saying that, you know, she didn't identify with feminism and even like brings in the thought of, um, you know, trans women and how a lot of women um, want to kind of like push trans women out of the, the movement for women's rights, even though they belong in the movement for women's rights. So um, why is it important for us to be inclusive, especially of, you know, trans women and women of color and our fight for um, equity? Honestly, it just, the whole, the situation, it hurts my heart because the rate at which trans women, especially trans women of color, like are dying every year is like, this is a huge, huge issue. And I just feel like as women, I don't understand why it's okay for us to neglect that this is happening or to turn a blind eye. Like, they are women. Like, I just, my mind gets blown when there are women who are protective of womanhood and what it means to be a woman. And it's just like, being a woman is whatever you want it to be, first of all. And also, why are you gatekeeping womanhood? I just, my mind is totally blown. Like, so anyway, I think we shouldn't be gatekeeping womanhood, obviously. And I, yeah, I totally agree with what Audre Lord said. Um, we are not all free until all women are free, and that includes trans women. Uh, you know, I think just to really underscore the violence against um, trans women, especially trans women of color, it is not something um, that we can continue ignoring. And as... Um, like and it needs the work that we need to do to be inclusive has to be more than just like putting our pronouns in which which i'm not you know being dismissive of anything that i can do to make someone um feel more seen and heard i'm ready to do that but i know that as a challenge to myself i know that i need to be doing more for trans women because this is like um you know this is like an issue that it doesn't make any sense for anyone to have even a little bit of compassion and not be acting on. Um, I think the idea, Tara, that you were talking about gatekeeping womanhood, that's, that is what, like, that's what any, um, any, like, terrible movement is doing, is gatekeeping and, and, um, drawing the lines and um and using otherness to to just maintain power because like you know you can gatekeep womanhood but there's still some there's still an, going to be a hierarchy of someone who is more woman than you and and that just that's that's just some simply a tool to keep folks um at, like you know separated and not um and not thinking about this as a movement and um i you know feminism has been really really exclusive especially in its earlier waves and um i know that like when i was younger and um when i first started wearing hijab like 
my my feminism was often challenged because folks like white women saw me as um as oppressed and that's just like the category that i was in so like i wasn't um i wasn't free enough to be a part of that, that movement i of course view myself as a feminist and um and, and reject that notion um and you know have found many spaces where i don't feel that way and uh, but i but yeah i think like to to other anyone and especially like folks whose lives are on the line um instead of finding ways to protect and and um and shield those like trans women like it's just um it's just unconscionable. That that was such a legal world word. I'm sorry that I said it. <laughs> I just echo everything that Tierra and Muniba said about gatekeeping. Um, trans women are women. <laughs> Their rights are our rights. Um, I'll just say on on the topic of uh, you know, no woman is free until every woman is free. If my freedom is conditioned upon the subjugation of another person, then I am not truly free. <laughs> uh, it's just—it's really just that simple. Especially, I think Muniba um, was highlighting that there's always going to be someone else who's more woman. But even more than that, um, these lines of separation are not real. They were imposed upon us by the patriarchy, by white supremacy, um, by these systems that we were born into. Um, so to other someone, whether that's because they're trans or they're black or they're wearing a hijab or they're not, they're queer or whatever the thing is, is just to buy into that system just because you have, um, or I have certain perks in that system and I, you know, can style my hair a certain way or wear the clothes that I want, or I don't know, whatever your idea of freedom is. I'm not really free so long as one of my sisters is suffering because um, she's 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 in fear of her life because she's being murdered in egregious numbers, which is in fact legal or not unconscionable, Muniba. So <laughs> I support your use of that word. Yeah, and I just think about it in the way that you know we we won't be able to really truly advance equality and our freedoms and liberties and until we dismantle these notions of gender um, norms and identities entirely and just allow people to be themselves and and just experience everything on the even playing field. Um, and I, I think that a lot of the work that, you know, so many like um, trans women are doing and like activists are doing is actually directly helping like the the women's rights movement so i don't see why um so many people are like rejecting the idea of being inclusive and just bringing everyone into the fold like tearing apart these gender norms is, is helping all of us um and it, it makes me think too about like um the work of you know um of rbg i just think about you know the some of the cases that you know she took before the Supreme Court um, that, you know, it, it looked at um, not only the roles of women, but the roles of, of men in our society. Um, and um, like her, her case, Frontiero versus Richardson, 
Um, and I, I, I wonder, you know, what you all think. Is there still enough work being done across the board um, to erase traditional concepts and ideas of just like gender norms? And I, I believe in that case, only only a, a woman can like get her husband's benefits, but the the husband couldn't get the wife's benefits. Um, so just like tearing down gender norms in general, um, is, is there like still enough work being done today in our society to do that? The short answer is no. <laughs> and that's just by virtue. I'm not going to, it's not, my no is not a comment on the work that is currently being done. It's just a comment on the, like how much work there is to be, to do. Um, so yeah, in that case, um, the, the, the woman was uh, in the, in the air force and she wants to claim her husband as a dependent. But the rules are set up such that only wives could be claimed as dependents. Um, and so then the question was, like, is this sex discrimination? And the Supreme Court of the United States um, uh, said yes. And so it dismantled that. Um, but that case was from, like, RBG, like, litigation days in the early 70s. Um, and so it was only 50 years ago. And when I think about these these major wins in the Supreme Court, um, I can't help but also think about Brown v. Board of Education, which was now like over 60. So I'm really, I went to law school because I'm bad with numbers, partially. <laughs> um, but um, with Brown v. Board of Education, that was 1954. Um, they ruled uh, the schools had to desegregate. Um, and in just May of 2016, so like five-ish years ago, but 60 plus years after Brown v. Board of Education, a court had to order a school district in Mississippi to de desegregate. So schools are desegregated by the Supreme Court of the United States over 60 years ago, yet we still have courts ordering schools to desegregate. And all of that is to say that Frontiera was 50 years ago. That's not a lot of time. Like these, these cases happen. But in terms of changing the culture, that takes way longer, um, especially because the dominant culture has been the dominant culture for so long. And so long as we continue to perpetuate um, gender norms and like ideas of what it means to be a woman or a man or a this or a that, um, these things are going to persist. Um, and I think that we, we're seeing them, at least I'm really in an eye-opening way seeing them during this COVID-19 uh, period where um, many women that I know who are also mothers um, have had to take on the lion's share of the caregiving at home while both she and the partner work from home. It's like they just defaulted to these <laughs> these traditional roles. Um, I'm just gonna I'll leave my commentary there, but um, and pass it off to my colleagues. But yeah, there's a there's a lot of work to be done in this area. Oh, Andrea, it's so funny because I actually was going to mention that, <laughs> like <laughs> the fact that especially in monogamous um, heteronormative relationships, like yes, women are being able to like work more and kind of do more and take more leadership roles, but then they're coming home and <laughs> taking on the full responsibility of taking care of their homes. And I think that's absolutely ridiculous and 
you know, that's more of a cultural thing and the work that we need to do as a society to like make sure that <laughs> the work is being divided in a more fair way. I think that's something we need to work on um, culturally. But I will, as like a positive note, as far as um, things go, I will say it is nice. Um, in a lot of roles I've taken in my like youngest career, it's great that I've been seeing a lot of like women um, in leadership roles and <laughs> and um, working with a lot of women in the office. So I will say that that is a plus, but I think we have a lot of work to do um, as a society and culturally and how, I just feel like our society has not caught up to the fact that um, women are leaders, that women are running things. Um, so yeah, I'll keep my comments there. Yeah, and I'll, um, I'll just add that I completely agree with Tara about it being cultural, but just an example of how systemic and structural it is too, like thinking about like folks going through immigration proceedings, um, men tend to get detained um, at, like, you know, in immigration, who are in immigration proceedings, tend to be put in immigration detention um, a lot more because immigration judges are like, oh, you know what, this is not the, um, the caretaker of the family. It's fine to keep them in immigration detention, whereas women, like, you know, might get a little more leniency and uh, will not be put into detention, especially if they have children. And so you see, like, things like that, first of all, like, end immigration detention and um, the carceral state. Like, that's, you know, baseline thoughts, just throwing that out there. Um, so you all know where I'm coming from. But I think, like, judges and um, the legal system being set up in a way where necessarily, um, you know, uh, a caretaker dad being put into detention just because he's a man, like that continues to perpetuate um, how how gender norms are like forced upon folks, even if they if that's not the natural set or the setup in their homes, and um, even if that's not the case, like that that the woman is the caretaker like that's that's just an assumption being made all the time in uh legal in the legal space and of course i'm sure in so many other spaces but i think you know andrea what you were saying about like how it hasn't been long since that case and and um or it has been but not not the way that our society moves and you see that in in the built-in structures of how men and women are perceived. Um, and that's just one example, right, that I can think of because I do a lot of immigrants' rights work and my clients end up being men um, who are, like, a lot of the folks that we end up representing are men in detention, and that's not an accident. Thank you for sharing that. And um, talking a little bit about um, some of the work that we do um, and that kind of just makes me think about some comments earlier that Tiara made about, um, you know, our, our campaign for smart justice work. Um, and I, I feel like, you know, a lot of our women's rights work is like intersecting with these other areas um, like criminal justice reform. 
Um, we do a lot of work with incarcerated women, um, especially um, we've been doing a lot around like COVID um, and improving conditions and trying to get um, people released from the prisons um, and jails. And um, we, we've done some work too around like trans women in prison, which can be horrible um, because sometimes they will put, you know, a trans woman in jail with men. Um, and that can just prove to be um, horrific and um, violent. And we've had cases in the past that kind of covered um, that work. Um, so I just wonder if um, anyone wants to kind of talk a little bit more about um, like our campaign for smart justice, um, just to give people a little bit more background. Um, but basically, the gist of the Smart Justice campaign is to work to decarcerate Pennsylvania. There are too many people who are um, incarcerated right now, and a lot of people are incarcerated pre-trial, so before they've been convicted of anything. Um, and a lot of the reasons why that is is because of issues like cash bail. Um, and people not being able to afford to even be released. Um, so we work on uh, cash bail, probation. A lot of people are um, incarcerated because they may have some form of technical violation on their probation and it causes them to be uh, detained. Um, and also uh, po policing issues. Um, but I will say this is definitely a women's rights issue because of kind of what we were talking about before, right? Like how any time a person is incarcerated, it uh, negatively impacts their quality of life. And that can be because of their job. Maybe they don't show up for even a few days and they lose their job. They could be caretakers, whether you're a man or a woman, a caretaker at home. You're, you're not able to uh, to be there to take care of your children. So you're trying to scramble and figure out that situation, et cetera, et cetera. And also like mental health issues, like being incarcerated, especially during COVID. That's <laughs> I know there are people who are just so scared, especially since when you first enter a lot of these jails, you have to be quarantined. So I'm talking 23 hours in your cell, in, in your cell, um, one hour where you're actually allowed to be out. Um, and a lot of times you don't even get the 20, the one hour every single day. Um, so basically, we're working to decarcerate, and incarceration is horrible and <laughs> horribly impacts quality of life and um yeah <laughs> and that's a women's rights issue because we are people just like everyone else and um yeah and i'll stop talking about <laughs> other people um, just celebrating the probably the one good thing of 2020 um but um, we did uh, have our election and um, it led to us getting a, a first ever woman VP who is also of black and Indian descent, daughter of immigrants. So it just celebrate that even though, you know, we, we are nonpartisan, but just having a woman um, VP, uh, I think is, is really like a triumph. Um, so how did that make you all feel? Excited, but to hold her accountable as well. <laughs> I, I too did have mixed feelings. Like, yes, it's great as far as representation goes, but representation isn't enough. You also have to do the work. Unexpectedly happy, because I didn't know I could be happy last year. <laughs> 
um, everything that Tierra and Muniba said. And also, I just want to elevate a woman of great import, um, Shirley Crystal, because without her, we would not have our, our current vice, vice president. Um, so grat gratitude, gratitude for her legacy. Thank you all for that, especially for lifting up the fact that um, our, our elected officials still have to be held accountable. Um, we can celebrate, you know, the representation, but um, they still need to do the work and we still need to, you know, see our systems uh, dismantled and um, some new ones built and actually see some real change happen. That's Andrea Anastasi, Tierra Bradford, and Muniba Talakter. A special thank you to them for sharing their perspectives and insights on the movement for women's rights. A video recording of this conversation is also available on our YouTube channel. You can follow us on YouTube and various social media platforms with the handle at ACLUPA to stay updated. To learn more about the women of the ACLUPA and the work that they do, visit aclupa.org for more information. Well, that brings episode 57 to a close. The editor of Speaking Freely is Freddie Foule. Our music is from Ben Sound. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Cambria Lee, and I enjoyed taking over Speaking Freely for this special episode in celebration of all women everywhere. Until next time, be healthy, and be free.